Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. Book of Acts, beginning chapter 4, verse 32, we will read into chapter 5 and verse 11. So beginning in chapter 4, verse 32, we will read through chapter 5, verse 11, and I will be reading out of the New King James Version this morning, as is my custom. God's Word declares, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, there, now was there anyone among them who lacked, I'm sorry, nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it so was sold, was it not your, in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young man arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me, whether you sold the land for so much? She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. On bat, there we go. We might have to replace this. I think the switch is going bad. It was on. We continue our study in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, we need to do a little bit of review, of course, because we want to set the context of where we're at in chapter 8. And for those of you who haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, uh, welcome back. And, of course, our guests are always welcome. And we, well, so are everyone else. <laughs> the rest of you aren't always welcome, just sometimes. <laughs> we know you better, no. <laughs> no, it's good to have all of you here. Um, but we want to go back and, and understand the context of coming into the balance of chapter 8. We'll not finish it this morning. Uh, we'll finish up next week. But we want to certainly... Uh, 
understand this role of giving in the in the church at Corinth as we work through 2 Corinthians. And as I've said each week, uh, for the last three weeks, if we are not right with 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7, we'll come to chapter 8 with incredulity. We'll come there not wanting to believe that this is anything that's important to me, but rather this is something that's important to preachers and churches to build budgets. And hopefully over the last two weeks you have recognized that that just isn't what chapter 8 is about. And we come to that attitude based more upon our experience with charlatans than with our understanding of God's word. But we've also had experience not only with those who make it their aim to raise funds, but also within the church who has been heavily influenced by American economic ideas. And we're going to have to address some of those this morning yet again. That we measure success in these ways, rather than recognizing these as simply an overflow of success in many other ways. And in the course of this study, hopefully we have derived that. So we begin by understanding that if there is not a commitment to godliness that we have studied for seven chapters, that chapter 8 has... We don't have any expectation of that happening in your life. And to jump into chapter 8 and say, well, if I do this, then I'm going to be approved by God or acceptable before God is error. You are misguided, misled. You're a fool to think that somehow you can buy your salvation. For God is not going to be mocked in that fashion. Um, He has a much greater uh, measure than that. And he has greater interests than that. And so we come to chapter 8 recognizing that this is on the heels of chapters 1 through 7 of 2 Corinthians. The talk about the necessity of us coming with godly sorrow before God seeking repentance. That we are called to be holy as God is holy. We are to have the day of salvation at work in us that we don't receive the grace of God in vain. Those kinds of statements are prior to this chronologically and greater than this passage in our Christian experience. But we come to chapter 8 and it stands because it is a measure. It's not the measure, it's a measure. It becomes a way to... um, Visit, and maybe that's why it becomes so attractive to us to uh, measure people's spirituality by their giving uh, instead of understanding that that is something that, as we've discussed, is not of commandment. Rather, we try to create the symptoms of spirituality without having the real thing in our life. We don't want to generate that in our church that we look at the symptoms of spirituality and say there must be spirituality behind that now and recognize that they might show the symptoms, but that doesn't mean they have the disease called Christ-likeness. And we want everyone to get that disease. We'll share it. We'll communicable. It is communicable. So we come to chapter 8, and the first lesson we learned several weeks ago was that it begins by recognizing who owns what. And have we granted God ownership of all that we are and all that we have. And we saw in the example of the Macedonian Christians who are not the wealthy by any means, who Paul says they gave first of themselves 
and then uh, they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us. And, and, and this is the commitment of any giving strategy within your life is if, it, if you still own all that stuff, you're going to really struggle with giving and you'll not be able to fulfill the rest of the commands of chapter 8 and chapter 9. It just will not become a reality in your life if everything that you possess you claim ownership of. Rather, if we come to it as Macedonians did and see this as a managerial role, that I am the, the accountant, I am the, the manager, I'm the steward is the biblical word, for the owner, and the owner is God. And that's not just over my material things and my bank account and my, my vehicle or my house, um, but it's about my life. It's about everything that I am and have. That it is God's. It is His to use. It is His to to work out and to take away if necessary. And we have Job's statement, you know, um, will I only bless the Lord when He gives or will I bless Him when He takes away? But the Macedonians became our our testimony, our uh, example to follow, that they gave of themselves. And these are people that uh, what, because they had come to this place in their life, didn't want to miss out on the chance of giving. I remember that two weeks ago, that uh, we have it totally reversed in our churches, where we have pastors, it seems, and others, begging churches to give. But the biblical example is when the church comes to them and begs to give. Instead of us begging for funds, they're begging to give them. And here are the Macedonians who were not included in the request for funds because of their poverty came and says, don't leave us out. We don't want to miss out on the opportunity to give. What a different spirit than what we see in our age. And it speaks to the condition not only of the clergy, but it speaks to the condition of the laity as well that we are spiritually upside down in this area. Last week we looked at the difference between grace and law. For Paul here makes the statement in verse 8 that he is not speaking by commandment. He's not commanding them to give. That's an Old Testament concept. We come in the New Testament and over and over again throughout these two chapters we will keep coming back to this idea that this is a grace that God gives you. And if we have this grace, this gift from God to enable us to give something we don't deserve, we don't deserve the privilege of being givers. Now that sounds really weird, doesn't it? That's right. None of you deserve the privilege of giving to God. You don't deserve that. But God, in his grace, grants it to us. You might say, well, why is it a privilege to give? Um, Well, not even counting the earthly benefits of it. Uh, Philippians, we looked at last week, talks about that there is a heavenly account that you're investing in. And that, unfortunately, many have never opened. So we find this grace, that it's not a commandment. There isn't a law. We are not teaching a tithe in this church. We Never will while I'm at the pastor. We do not have fundraising uh, strategies. You will not see thermometers on the wall and, and uh, 
Things like that. You just don't see it. We won't even pass a plate because we don't do that. We want it to be generated not from us, out of you, but from you. That we will take extra effort to make sure that I'm not robbed of the grace of giving, this wonderful gift that God gives us. And so it is not of commandment, but it's of grace. And it's shameful that in too many pulpits and for too long, that giving has been uh, turned upside down like that, where it's become a commandment. And pastors are checking giving records and, and nonsense like that. Um, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter, fundamentally, to the pastor in his role. It should matter to you, not to me. And we try to develop a need to generate giving and it's foolishness. And as a result, when the need isn't there, the giving dissipates. What a horrific thing to happen. Not to me, not to the ministry, not to uh, nonprofit organizations. What a horrible thing to happen to you. To stop giving because, well, there's no, not a need. There is always a need, as we're going to find out this morning. And so this morning we are going to press on this aspect of grace and look at our ultimate example of it, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather your name this morning. We thank you for your word before us. We pray for your help in understanding it, but Lord, more than that, of uh, realizing that's implications and applications to our life. We might be willing to lay hold of it as our own from you with the authority that it carries. Lord, guard this time from error, from opinion, that what is spoken might be in accordance with the entirety of your truth. We pray things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So, we come to verse 9. That is where we are at. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 8, and we find right away a statement, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Very powerful verse. He has given us the example of the Macedonians, and he now is going to turn to the ultimate example. Here's an earthly example of a church that was poor and yet wanted to give. They were committed to it and were wanting not to be left out of it because they understood this grace. And now we're going to come to the wealthiest. So we went from this poorer churches in Philippi and Thessalonica, that area, to the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, Jesus Christ. And in his great wealth, in his great riches of eternal uh, joy in heaven, uh, he could have easily stayed. But by his grace, that is his desire to give us something we didn't deserve, again, that's grace, uh, he was willing for our benefit to leave that place and to come here. He left his throne, we sang a little earlier this morning, thou didst leave thy throne in thy kingly realm. You left all of that to come and be born here on earth not uh, in luxurious circumstances, but in the basest of places, 
uh, under the, the lowest circumstances. You came not as a powerful entity, but you came as a little baby, and then you uh, went from bad to worse sometimes. Uh, you, you just lived this life where you created the animosity between you and sinners, and yet you came for those very sinners that hated you. Hated you enough to have you crucified. And here is the eternal God taking on flesh, which boggles our mind, humbling himself, Philippians says, and becoming a servant, being obedient even to death. A death on the cross. Why? Why would he do such a thing? But we understand it because we are the recipients of it, that we have gained eternal salvation by the means of Christ's sacrificial giving of himself. And that in the end, of course, we know that he who abased himself was highly exalted, given a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bend, every head shall bow. One of those. We, we see and understand this, and yet from a purely selfish perspective, we don't really have a grasp of the answer to that question of why. Why would you do that? If you ever had opportunity to discuss your finances with unbelievers, those who are not within the church, and you start to discussing um, the area of giving, uh, I have people asking, why would you do that? Why? They don't get it. Why would you give away all your hard-earned money? Why would you do that? They don't understand it. They don't grasp what's behind it. Is there some great need? Is there some great value for you in that? And from the Macedonian example, as well as from Christ's example, it is the recognition that the kind of love we are talking about from God is gracious that considers others' needs ahead of our own. And the amazing aspect of this that is counter the wisdom of the world, but it is in the super wisdom, the hyper wisdom of God, is that in the end there is a benefit. But it's not of this earth, ultimately. Because we don't count this earth as our home, and its possessions of great value. And so your guarded junk that you have at your house, we're going to sell at the garage sale, and it's accumulating out there. We even have the kitchen sink, I think, or that bathroom sink which came in this morning. So we're going to convert that into something of eternal value. Can we do that? Absolutely. Just as Christ came to physically sacrifice himself for our eternal Reward, a benefit that lasts for all who will believe in him for all time. And he becomes our example. And Paul is going to press the Corinthian church in dealing with this example that, yes, through Christ giving up of his riches, he did so for our sakes. He was willing to become even poor that we might be the recipients of his wealth. That we might become the rich, spiritually and in terms of our eternal state. We will be 
joint heirs with Jesus Christ. I don't know that we really recognize what that means. To be equal in inheritance with Jesus Christ. That's incredible what God is offering. What God has provided for us. We are not subservient, but we are joint heirs. We are equal heirs with Christ. That what God has granted to him, he will grant to us in his presence. This is the marvel of Christ's sacrifice. So we come down, we're going to apply this now to the Corinthian church, and we're going to bring it into our day, and that's going to be frightening. You're going to be shocked a little bit, but when aren't you? <laughs> the last few weeks, you've all been like, the pastor just say we're not supposed to give? Yeah, he did. If you're not going to do it biblically, don't do it. It's not expected. Did you just tell us not to tithe? Yes, I did. Told you not to tithe last week. It's not a commandment. So this week we're going to describe a little bit of what God's expectation of of the church. We come and jump down to verse 13 and see how Paul's going to apply this to the Corinthians. He says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. This is the, uh, the object, the, the goal, the anticipation that within the people of God there is this mutual care so that there is a equality of provision. And this is so foreign to us. And, well, it's not foreign to us. We've associated this with, with communist, godless communism. But this is really foreign to our experience within the church. And I don't mean this local church. And I don't mean the American church. I mean the, the global church. What the Corinthians were being confronted with wasn't a need across town. It wasn't a need um, with their neighbor. It was a need way over in Jerusalem where there was an intense famine. And it was time that the wealthy churches in Greece and some in in Asia Minor and even the not-so-wealthy churches up there in Macedonia, northern Greece, that they were tapped a little bit and at least given an opportunity to respond if God had graced them to do so. And so they were given opportunity and the Corinthian people had responded verbally. They had made a verbal commitment to participate in this assistance to the people of God over there in Judea where there was great famine. And this isn't a pittance that they are talking about. They're talking about substantial provision to care for them. In fact, so substantial that Paul didn't even think to even ask the Macedonians because they didn't have very much to give. So he didn't even confront them. They said, wait a minute. Don't leave me out. We want to make sure that we're participating, even though it might be a small amount compared to what others are capable of. Don't leave us out of this grace, of this privilege to give. And so we come to this equation that God, that Paul presents the Corinthians. It is not that you are going to carry this burden of, of, of having nothing so that others can just sit at ease 
and have all their needs met. That is the American welfare system. Okay, That's how we have set it up, and that's a failure. And Paul's not advocating that, where we have those that are going to work hard and then be uh, and have some taken away, while others who do nothing and have an equal standing to those that are working hard. That is not what Paul's advocating here. Nor is it a redistribution of wealth as we think of it in our experience here in this country or in other countries. Remember, this is based upon a grace of God that has within the heart of the individual to care for the needs of those who are genuinely needy. And by God's word, we find out who those people are. We know that there are people that are not capable of working. Because the Bible makes it very clear that if a man will not work, what shouldn't he also not do? Eat. That's a pretty fundamental need, isn't it, of life? It's not a cell phone. It's not a car. It's not a jacket. It's not a backpack for school. It's food. I mean, that's a fundamental need of life, right? And the Bible says, if you're not willing to work, neither should you eat. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about supporting a class of people that have uh, an unwillingness to work and just want to be supported. But rather, there was a genuine need. And of course, we have a great example of this back in Acts that we read earlier today. Let's turn over there very quickly. In Acts, we have the account, <clears throat> and everyone um, likes verses 32 to 37. And then we get to chapter 5 of Acts, and then we get very frightened. <laughs> but they're intimately connected one to the other. And so we have here an account of what it was like in the early church, and we're going to focus in on one verse that is correlated to what goes on here in Corinthians. We find that the multitude there in Jerusalem are gathered together, and they're of one heart, of one soul, and the result of being one, unified as a people of God, what does it look like when we're one in heart and soul as a people? Well, here's one way it looks like in verse 32. It says, Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. They understood ownership. And one of the first evidences that they were a oneness of the Spirit of God upon them was that none of them claimed self-possession of their things. That, you know, mi casa su casa, my house, your house, my stuff's your house, stuff, what do you need? And, let me, and we, there's a, a genuine willingness to care for one another. Not um, a disregard or a, a, a apathetic approach well, I hope that works out. To, we'll be praying for you, brother. But a genuine willingness to say, what do you need? I love it when you guys call me and ask for my stuff. Can I borrow this? Oh, of course. You don't need to go buy one of those. I have one of those. And I barely use it. Whether it's a tool or a something else. Uh, it's an opportunity to demonstrate that, well, you know, some of you don't really have to ask. Poor Caleb got in trouble at my house the other day by his parents 
because he offered them one of our vehicles to use this morning or yesterday. He offered his mom one of my cars to use because they had one vehicle gone another, and his mom looks at him, you can't offer their vehicle to us. Why not? If we understand this concept that of God's ownership, then we have the opportunity to do that. And I've been in churches where there was uh, you know, an individual that understood this, and they would see someone in need, and they would know somebody had the resources, and they'd connect the two together. They'd take the person in need, they'd go to the person with the resources. You got this. This guy needs it. Let him use it. Let him have it. Understood this concept. And so one of the evidences of a true unified church is a willingness to share and a willingness to be shared with. The biggest problem that we have while we don't have unity in the church is our own pride gets in the way. I don't want to ask. Because you don't want God's grace to be exercised in our church. Oh, did you just say that? Yeah, you're opposing God's grace being exercised by the church. That's what your pride has just interfered with. You see, we have a mentality that's a very American mentality of self-reliance. And we have applauded self-reliance historically in the church. I pull myself up by my own bootstraps attitude. It's not a biblical concept at all. In fact, we have uh, made it a, a malady if you are dependent on others. Well, we are, if we are truly a unified church, interdependent upon one another. We are, here we go, codependent. And I know the psych community says that that's a malady, something wrong, an illness or, or a condition that needs to be corrected. Um, God's word has a very different idea. God's word describes the church as codependent. We are codependent upon Christ, and we are codependent upon one another. This is the condition of a unified church. And perhaps the reason our churches are dysfunctional and disunified, uh, that they are schismed, is because we have not recognized the necessity of codependence. Because we have bought an American philosophy of independence. That you're not really a full-fledged adult unless you have your own house, car, income, and pets. I don't know if that's always in that order, but usually it's car, pets, house. Well, no, it'd be income. So anywhere. We've got this idea that that means adulthood. And it's come into the church and disrupted the unity of the one-heartedness and the one-soulness that we are called upon. But it's verse 33 I really want to focus in on. It says, With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There's that word grace again. We wonder about why the 
gospel is lacking in power. And I would contend that verse 33 is stuck in this passage on purpose because it falls on the heels of verse 32 and it comes immediately before verse 34 where it says, There was no one among them who lacked for all who were possessed of lands, houses, sold them, bought, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, laid them at the apostles' feet. That means they gave completely, utterly, released, no strings attached. It's no longer for me to control. You take care of it. That's real giving. And in between these two passages talking about this uh, oneness they had in a physical way, you have this powerful statement that says that while this is going on, while there's unity of heart and soul so that no one considered his own stuff his stuff, it's our stuff. It's you and me and God's. It's our stuff. And then we took care of one another so that no one had any lack. In between those two verses slips in verse 33, and I would contend that it is a result of properly managing the stuff that we cling to so ridiculously. Uh, and, And pastors are just as guilty of this, by the way. If you don't believe me, go into church in financial trouble and see if they cut the pastor's salary first or the missionary's first. Go find out. I've been on the missionary side of that, so I know where that equation goes to. Here, tucked in here, is a statement that says, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection with great power. With great power. You see, as a... We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the power of the gospel message and the power of salvation, the power of the resurrection. And in the midst of this, surrounding it is this oneness of spirit and soul of God's people that says we're not going to make, we're not going to let anyone lack amongst us. We're going to be sure to take care of one another. And it gave evidence and proof of the reality of the power of the resurrection. And it enhanced the preaching to the point that it says with great power. Now, at the end of the passage in chapter 5, it's going to show its power to weed out the liars, the cheats, and that's going to bring fear upon all men. But I would not disconnect the fear of all men, verse 11, with the power of chapter 4, verse 33. They are well connected. And again, we cannot miss the facet of grace. This is a great grace. This is a privilege God grants to us that we don't deserve. A oneness of spirit soul that we can't live with the knowledge that one of our own is suffering. Unduly. And so they sold stuff and brought the money that they had the possibly gave it up. And then you have Ananias and Sapphira. And the problem wasn't that they held back some of the money because remember, there's no commandment to give. Command, giving is a grace, not a law. There's no commandment to give. They did not get in trouble because they didn't give it all. No one in this church will get lectured for not giving enough because it's not a commandment, it's a grace. I'll feel bad for you because you're going to miss out. Giving is a great, fun thing to do. It really is. And it has 
an investment in the future that's incredible. And so I'm sorry for you, but I'm not going to lecture you. So we have uh, no commandment for Ananias and Sapphira to do what they did. And the problem wasn't that they only gave half or three-fourths or whatever. That wasn't a problem. They needed to keep back some back because they wanted to do something. But the problem was they lied. They misrepresented their giving. Why would they do such a thing? Because they were giving for the wrong reasons. And here again, we visit the same issue that we have last week. They gave for the wrong reason. And it cost them their very lives to do that. We talked last week about being a cheerful giver, and how does that happen? It happens when we understand that I'm not under compulsion to do this. I am under grace that I get to do this. And it changes the whole atmosphere of giving now, and it can be a joyful thing, a cheerful thing, and it can be a generous thing, that we are no longer limited by this 10% number. Just think of how many blessings people have lost in the grace of giving because they confine themselves to a tithe. Here we have them come in and they want to lie and they want to misrepresent it and they, and they want the spiritual accolades for giving. Sound familiar? Without the reality in their life. Their giving became a facade and it wasn't quite enough for them to just tell people, well, this is half the purchase price of our land. Uh, we're planning on using the other half, you know, because we're going to go out to eat a lot for the next three weeks. Um, whatever it was they were going to spend it on. I don't know what they had in mind. But they wanted to lie and say, well, I'm giving this much and, and it's the whole purchase price. We're bringing it all to you and we're going to do what Barnabas did and, and care for it. And that's what got them into trouble because there's no commandment to give. It is a grace. And they were trying to feed off the grace God had given to others and applied to themselves through trickery. And it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work in this area, guess what? It doesn't work in any area. You cannot trick God in letting you into heaven. It just won't work, folks. He is not a fool. He is not to be deceived. He cannot be, for he knows your heart. And you're not lying to me. You're not lying to the church. Uh, you're, 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 well, you are, but uh, that's not a big deal. People lie to me all the time. You're lying to yourself, and worse than that, even that, okay, you're lying to yourself. You want to self-deceive yourself, that's fine. But you're lying to God, and that's not fine. There's a judgment for that. There's a penalty to pay there. And these people paid with it with their lives. But the story doesn't really end there. In chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, we have all this ingathering, and then we get to find out who are these people in need that need to make sure that they're cared for, and we have to jump to the next chapter to find out where all this money is going. This money's coming in. Where's it all going? In chapter 6, we have a problem, and the problem wasn't there wasn't enough money. The problem wasn't there wasn't enough food. The problem was it wasn't equally being distributed. Remember, Paul says the goal of 
giving, the grace of giving within the church is equality. Not in terms of equality of a standard of living necessarily, but to make sure that everyone's needs are met so that no one had lack. That's what the objective was back here. Um, verse 35, they, they distribute to each as anyone had need. In verse 34, there was, there was, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. So no one was in a needy position where they did not have the fundamental things of life. We're not talking about vacations here. Okay? We're not talking about uh, things like that. We're talking about that. make sure that there is no lack, that no one has need that's unmet, who is fulfilling the responsibilities that God calls us to work and earn a living, uh, to uh, be responsible managers of what we have, to not be wasteful in our spending, uh, if those, if that's the condition, then there are certain consequences of that behavior. And we're not here to bail people out of those consequences of foolishly squandering what they have been given. When we come to chapter 6, we find out who the real needy are. In chapter 6, the problem was um, some widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Every day they were taking care of some people, and the people they were taking care of were the widows. And the complaint was that the Hebrew women, widows, were getting a lion's share of the daily distribution and the Greek widows were being ignored. No one said that that's not, that's not true. They didn't say that. They said, maybe that is true. But it's just not part of our job as the apostles they say, select yourself out some guys to take care of that. They select some out. And interestingly enough, the ones they select were all predominantly Greek names listed there. So if the Greeks are complaining, put the Greeks in charge. Right? Sure. Now you can't complain. It's your own guys doing it. But we have predominantly Greek men being selected. These are Hellenists, which means that they are Greeks who were converted or proselytized to Judaism, and then became Christians. So figure that route out, okay? So they were Greeks, became Jews, that became Christians, and that's how they were in the temple, um, in the courtyard of the Gentiles, where they're allowed to uh, participate, where Solomon's colonnade is, where they were generally meeting. And so they select these, and, and they took care of them. But look at what happens once they resolve this issue, and they're caring for the widows. Verse 7, the word of God spread. Wow. When we handle this area properly and we implement what Paul is talking about here in Corinthians, that we're going to make sure that, he, that everyone has a supply, that no one is lacking of their needs. And there is a huge difference in our concept of needs and their concept of needs. The Bible says, with food and raiment, be content. <laughs> That's a really short list, isn't it? Doesn't that make you uncomfortable? Come on, let's be honest. How may you be content with food and clothing? Nothing else. That's right, houses aren't on that list, sorry. Short list. Kind of makes you wonder if we're kind of materialistic way over the top. When we're not content because our computers don't quite go fast enough. They've got them out now that go faster than the one I have. I should probably get that. 
because I'm not content with waiting two seconds for that to load. I'd rather only wait one second because that one second is really important to me. I don't know what I'm going to do with that one second, but it's important so I can do more entertainment. Our society has bred discontentment, and I would contend that uh, that is because they don't want you to be godly. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness without contentment is worthless because it's not true godliness. And so the idea here presented to the Corinthians is that, listen, I'm not asking you to suffer so that they can go on vacation. I'm telling you that you have a great abundance and they have no food in Jerusalem. There is a famine in the land. And in Judea, they are struggling to survive. And you are over here with all this abundance. This cannot be within the church. And we're not talking about the local church. We're talking about the universal church. It cannot be. And that's Paul's goal, his aspiration, is that your abundance can supply their lack, and then something we don't really understand, their abundance may supply your lack. Do poor people have an abundance of something that we lack? Yes, they do. They have something called faith that we don't have. Oh, I know, we claim to have it, but let's be honest. How many of you are trusting God for your food tomorrow? Yeah. I mean, how many are you trusting God that he'll supply your food tomorrow? We can trust the storehouse. If, yeah, we can trust um, the food vouchers or whatever the government handing out. We trust our pantry, our freezer, our fridge, um, and for a few of us, uh, we trust the animals on our hoof, on the hoof that are future food. See, we lack something. We lack an understanding of what it means to be dependent upon God for daily provision. We pray and thank Him before our food. But that's about the extent of it, and that's really not faith. So they have something we don't have. They understand what it means to trust God on a daily basis and to rely upon him, and that's instructional to people in wealth. Remember that we are not the Jerusalem church. We are not the Macedonian church. We in this country are the Corinthian church. We are the abundant, the wealthy. We have a responsibility before God, if he has given of his grace to us, to recognize this is a need that we must address. We cannot allow ourselves to be just apathetic to the fact that I have brethren in Christ who are starving in other places, even distant places. But I have to take upon me a responsibility, not just to send it to some hunger agency, but to, by hand, deliver it to my brethren. That's what Paul's telling him. Listen, Every church that's giving is sending a representative with me. We're going to talk about how that's managed, how they manage the giving and the distribution here in a little bit, in a couple of weeks, two weeks from now. 
the responsibility and accountability that's there. That we're going to have this. And this is the responsibility of the church. And it goes counter-capitalism. It goes counter the American ideologies of wealth distribution and welfare. It's about we are going to take personal responsibility for the care of our family. Whether they be in Poland, in Egypt, in Haiti, in India, wherever they are, where there is real need. And there are no resources but God's to meet those needs. This is the point of giving. Not to make your life hard, but to recognize that you have an accounting to meet the needs of others that are lacking fundamental, basic needs that you take for granted. He finishes again with this statement in verse 9 of chapter 9. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He quotes this out of Psalm 112. God recognizes when we care for those who are really in need. And he gets the glory when we disperse the wealth that he has entrusted to our care. This is righteousness. We model Christ who gave it all up, suffered so that we could become rich. This is God's model for us to follow. This is what righteousness looks like. Know that God would grace us with such a spirit of unity of heart and soul that the gospel could be empowered by us having a right philosophy of giving, not of compulsion but of grace, not of commandment, but of grace. Not to our glory, but to the glory of his grace we give to meet the needs of others. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you.